Well, good morning. Hope you're all doing well. I've had a great weekend. It's been beautiful, though cool, weather, and I think we're going to get more rain, but that's a good thing this year. Um, we, I don't know if you noticed when you walked in the doors this morning, but we have a new little gizmo machine up in the AV uh, booth, and uh, it's, it's quite amazing, actually. Um, it actually can pick up thought patterns from people walking in the door so we can do a better analysis of people as they come in. And uh, yes, well said, well said. But uh, I just thought I would read, I got a little printout here from some of you that when you walked in, thought I would read just a few thoughts that you guys have had this morning. Kind of, the first one here is kind of strange, but it just says something like, I am so embarrassed that I attended Texas A&M University. I, I don't know where that came from, but uh, wow, you know, uh, you know. Well, let's try a different one, okay? Uh, another one here is: I wonder what the difference is between a badger and a hawkeye. I, I don't get that one either. I just wish it says that I'd gone to the University of Nebraska. That is so strange, you know. I don't understand these thoughts you guys are having. Uh, but let's get a little more serious here. There were some thoughts that were more typical, probably mine. Uh, I'm so tired this morning, but I've got to act like I'm excited to be in church because my kids are kind of watching me. Uh, that's a little more realistic, right? Um, I hope we get out of here quickly today. I've got, you know, games to go to. I've got to watch my kids or grandkids play in sports. Um, another one, do people really believe in this stuff? Wow, I mean, I believe in God, but so much of this stuff is way beyond the realm of possibility. Not for me in a real world. Well, that's a very honest, honest thought. The last one I got here is uh, one in which someone is thinking, and it seems to be a thought repeated over and over, man, I can't wait to hear Dave preach today. He is by far my favorite preacher of all time. <laughs> now, if... I don't know who thought that, but I think she's sitting on the front row, but I don't, I don't know. <laughs> My mom isn't around anymore, so uh, it has to be I own, I guess. So, but those thoughts that we have when we come into church, what were you thinking as you walked in? And by the way, just so you can relax, we don't have a gizmo in the back AV booth picking up on your thoughts, but what were you thinking as you walked in today? If you're like me, you walk in some Sunday mornings and you know, you're just kind of tired, and church is fun, and it's, it's, it's cool to be here, but sometimes it's hard to get the enthusiasm built up for what we're doing, you know, and you wonder, well, I wonder what songs we're going to sing this morning. I, I wonder who's going to do this part of the service, but really, we're, we're sometimes just asking the question, why am I here? You know, what, 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 what is going on? I'm a person of faith, um, but we don't know what else to do with it. Uh, we're not that enthusiastic. When we look in uh, our passage for this morning is John chapter 20. If you brought your Bibles, I would welcome you to open up to that or get on your phones or whatever your screen device you're using. Uh, John chapter 20, and we're going to kind of look at that whole chapter, but we're going to specifically focus on the story of Thomas as we've been going through a series of sermons on the resurrection uh, today, we're going to look at this little uh, series of vignettes, if you will, of different people's response 
to the resurrection. What would happen if we could have gotten into their minds and read their thoughts and had an understanding of where they're coming from? You know, the majority of people who attend church in America today would probably be comfortable in saying, I believe, I believe in Jesus Christ. He was a great person, maybe the greatest example of a moral teacher in all of history, um, that he was killed for saying the wrong things at the wrong time. I believe that. I don't have a problem with that. But most of us, if we're really honest with ourselves, we might draw a line right there and say, yeah, this rising from the dead thing. Uh, I, I just never have experienced that. I've never heard of that happening except in stories like this. And so I'm not sure I have that kind of faith. Uh, I think I do, but I don't know, right? If we're honest, if we're really honest with ourselves. It sounds like something people would say uh, that people down the road uh, in church history took stories like this and planted them in the New Testament just so that they could kind of stir up the Jesus myth. It would be great if these things really did happen. Do I believe they did? I mean, did anybody really walk on water? I, I've never seen it. Uh, when it says that Jesus healed people, can anyone really heal someone? There's a lot of people in the medical community right here. Have we seen God heal people? And well, some of us would say, well, yeah, I have. But a person like Jesus showing up, a really uneducated peasant, right, from the wrong side of the country, in a sense, uh, is showing up and he can heal even the most uh, determined diseases and handicaps and infirmary. Um, someone that was tortured and killed by being hung on a cross, can they really come back to life? Well, it seems to indicate that you can. And John understands that. I believe that the reason that the apostle uh, John is writing this gospel is to address those very questions. He's known as the beloved disciple, and he takes a swing at convincing his readers this is exactly what happened. These things that I'm saying to you in chapter 20, all resurrection stories are designed to meet us where we live. Maybe you'll see yourself in one of these, if not all of these stories. Remember, John's gospel, this story of Jesus, is so different from the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Why? Well, one, it's written much later than those other gospel accounts. John had the luxury of understanding that the basic story of Christ had already been told. The world really didn't need another historical account like Luke's of who Jesus was, what he did, how it ended, and so forth. He didn't need another account of Jesus' majesty as told as the king in the Gospel of Matthew, right? He wanted to write something a little different. So he starts his Gospel off with that very strange little uh, almost philosophical statement, you know, that in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And all the way through, down to verse 18, he's making different statements about Christ. He doesn't start with the genealogy. He doesn't begin with the ministry of Christ like the others do. He's trying to convince us that this man 
was different. This person is very different. And he ends his gospel with a tremendous focus. Matter of fact, probably most of his gospel is focused on the passion of Christ, on Jesus' arrest, right? His suffering, his death, and then his resurrection. Why does he write it so differently? What is the point of what he is doing? Some would say, well, Gnosticism, an early uh, first century belief system, had so dominated the area that somebody needed to do something to confront it. And John's gospel is designed to take that idea that there was indeed a Christ, a spiritual significance of some kind that infused itself into the man of Jesus, this Jesus of Galilee, and in their combination, Jesus became something so powerful that the world didn't know what to do with it, so they killed him, and then that something spiritual, that Christ, that Christos, left him, and the man Jesus died on a cross, and that's the end of the story. But that's not what John is doing here. At least that's not my belief. I think John wants that the readers of this gospel, specifically of this section of his gospel, to be confronted with the historical reality and truth claim of the resurrection. Now, this chapter 20 uh, has four little stories. And if you remember, the gospels weren't originally written with chapter breaks and verse breaks, right? This is just, is just the way that John is going to mold the reader all the way through to get to this point. And there's a couple things I really want to point out here. So like if we said we had four little stories, well, the first one is Peter and John, the beloved disciple, running on Easter morning to the empty tomb. Uh, they're confronted with the reality of the re resurrection because there's nobody in there, right? The second story was Mary, Mary Magdalene, is uh, going to the tomb, and she is confronted with the reality of Jesus' presence. There's Jesus standing there, Rabbi, Rabboni, as it says, and he says back to her, Miriam, you know, there's this connection. Thirdly, there's the story of the disciples gathered in the upper room, awaiting something, and Jesus shows up. And it says that when he came to them, he breathed on them and gave them the Holy Spirit. And the last story, starting in verse 24, is the one of Thomas the doubter. He was gone the previous week when Jesus showed up to the disciples. All he had done was heard the story. He, Jesus is back. He's risen from the dead. The master is here. The rabbi has come back. And Thomas, like you and I probably would have, was like, guys, what's, what's a joke? You know, what's the storyline here? What, what, what are you trying to do? I, I, I don't buy it. And it's Jesus' confrontation of Thomas's faith or lack thereof. But let's Let's just make sure that we're clear on this, so let's read it together, starting in verse 24. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, but, contrastive conjunction, <laughs> wait a minute, guys, he said to them, unless I see his hands and the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of those nails, and place my hand into his side, I will not believe. Strong statement. It's an emphatic statement. I will never believe. It's not just like, 
I don't know. I'm, I know I should, but I'm on the, I'm, I'm on the ropes. I, 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 I don't know what to do. And we know nervous people like that. And they're just kind of like, I want to, but I can't. And, and then you've got people on the other end of the spectrum, right, who believe anything and everything. And then you've got Thomas and people like him who say, I will never believe, not unless I have proof. And it goes on to say, eight days later, eight days, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, okay, put your finger here. See my hands? Put your uh, hand out and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answers him and says, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. All these stories are designed to build up to the crescendo in this chapter of Thomas's confrontation with Jesus, and actually it's a confrontation with his lack of belief. And before we get too critical of him, I know through the centuries Thomas is called the doubter, the proofer, the guy that wouldn't necessarily go with the story, but I think that John put him here, and I'm going to argue for this this morning, because he sees in the story of Thomas the rest of us, those who came to Christ after this time period. Those of us, in a sense, who did not get to walk the roadways with Christ. Those of us who did not see him personally heal anybody. Those who were not there on the Golgotha, and we watched him uh, hanging from a cross, only later to have that image erased by standing before us this amazing, you know, what in the Gospel of Luke is called an apparition, a ghost of Jesus. Wow, who is this? And for those and the rest of us, as it says, let's keep reading verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so what? That you, that's you and me, may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's the confession that we're supposed to come to. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. So we see three themes right here in this chapter. The first one is the reality of the resurrection. The tomb is empty. Uh, John, he goes on to write more, right? He writes other books of the Bible. We get to uh, 1 John at the end of Scripture and of the New Testament. And in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, John writes this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life. John is saying, listen, I, I get it. It's a leap of faith. Uh, people expect that you're just going to buy into the fact that Jesus was risen from the dead, that he was, by power of the Holy Spirit, by the will of his Father, taken from death and brought back to life, and not just any life, but eternal life. 
I get it. But I'm telling you, John says, that we have seen it. We have touched him. We have been with him. And if you can, take our word for it, we testify to the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. Back in his gospel in chapter 11, verse 25, uh, John writes down this quote from Jesus, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. There's that confession again. Who is coming into the world. Wow. So the first theme of John's section of Scripture here is the reality, the historical reality of the resurrection. Secondly, it's the resurrected Jesus and how this changes our relationship with him. Before at the cross, you had Jesus. They walked with him. They talked with him. They were in sleeping in open fields with him. They were in confrontation with the Pharisees with him. Uh, They had seen him in almost every imaginable aspect of human life before the cross, right? They felt like they knew him so well. They knew his family. They knew where he came from. Uh, He had met their family. There was no, like, well, we don't really know each other very well. No, they knew Jesus. They could give testimony to the fact that Jesus taught certain things, claimed certain things, lived a certain way, right? Right? then the cross and the resurrection. And now Jesus, that they know, is different. There's a physical intimacy that they had before the cross, but John's trying to say after the cross, there's a spiritual intimacy, right? The resurrection makes that difference. He's not just the same guy. We know this because of the story with Mary. Mary comes out and she's so excited to see Jesus. And when she sees him, she wants to hug him, right? She wants to grab onto him as you and I would. Rabboni, Rabbi. And he very tenderly responds, Miriam. We, we translate that as Mary. I wish I had another 20 minutes this morning. We could talk about why I believe the significance of changing her name to Miriam at that point how important Miriam was. The Miriam is the sister of Moses back in the Old Testament and how she was probably what we would call one of the first prophets, female prophets of Scripture. And he's saying to Mary, go tell the others. So not only does he address her intimately, but he gives her a task. He makes her sort of a prophet in her own right. Go tell others. Go tell those who are closest to me. But he says, do not hang on me. Do not grab me. I have not yet ascended to the Father. Wow. There's something different about Jesus as the resurrected Christ. In 1 John, another section that this gospel writer pens in chapter 4, verse 13, he says, By this we know that we abide in Jesus, in Jesus in us. How's that possible? How can you abide in something? Before the cross, there was no abiding in Jesus. He was just a guy. Uh, We were close to him, right? You know, this very disciple, the one who's writing this book, was probably the closest to him. The the level of intimacy, intimacy between Christ and John is just truly astounding. But it's nothing 
That friendship is nothing compared to what happens after the resurrection, where Jesus, at this point, is able to abide in us. And how does that happen? He says, because in in chapter 4, verse 13, he says, because he has given us his spirit. When he shows up in that upper room with those disciples back in chapter 20, and he breathes on them, I take that as a symbolic breath of what is to come in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit inflames these guys. But whatever the case, he abides with us. So if you're alive today and you're confronted with the claims of Christ, we have a privilege. The actual abiding presence of Jesus in us. He abides in us. He lives in us. It's not like these guys that were limited by the laws of physics. They couldn't be in Jesus before the cross, but after the cross, they can. The third theme here is the theme of faith. The theme of faith. And that is running through here all the way. In the Greek, the word for faith, to believe, is pistis. In the noun form, right? It's a word of faith, but Jesus wants us to have the verbal form of faith, pistuo. He wants us to be active in our faith. These things are written so that you may believe, same word, so that you may have faith that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by pistuo, believing, action verb, you may have life in his name. He wants you to move from what you think you know and have faith in to the action that that faith should produce in your life. We see that all the way through this chapter. Peter and John possess the evidence of the empty tomb. It changes them. Mary has the evidence of the encounter. It changed her. The apostles experience Christ, and he gives them that that privilege of seeing him in the upper room. And Thomas, well, Thomas refuses to believe until he gets his own experience of the resurrected Christ. And Jesus is saying, there's more to it. Faith is not just experiencing Christ. It's believing, believing that becomes action. What John is basically saying is this. This account, this New Testament, these Gospels, my Gospels specifically, very few pages make up the Gospel of John, right? We're in chapter 20. There's only really one more chapter, and it's a small book. But he says this, what you have here, what you and I possess in this Bible, what we can read and we can meditate on and we can memorize, and what it instructs us in is every bit as authentic and powerful as their experience walking and talking and touching Jesus. You need nothing else is what John is contending here. Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And the reason he can say that is because we have the account written here, right? The Gospels, they're historical. They, they connect us to this world that we can't touch today because we were born too late. Now, not everybody believes this. There are some, like uh, John Dominic Croson, uh, a mystic, uh, somebody who 
uh, would say that he believes in the Christian message, but yet he does not see there is a need for these historical facts. He doesn't believe that the resurrection actually happened. It's more of a story. And he goes around and he debates people. He had the famous debate back in 1994 with uh, William Lane Craig, in which William Lane Craig lays out why we can believe the historicity of the Gospels, why the resurrection is so important. And if the Apostle Paul could join William Lane Craig, he would be standing right next to him saying, yes, without the truth of the resurrection, we as Christians are most to be pitied. It's a truth statement. There's four different approaches to the story of Christ in these Gospels, right? We have the Acts and the Epistles all telling us this is how we're supposed to live out this faith that we have. The Word of God is sufficient in and of itself. We need nothing more than what was written here. Think about that for a second. I asked you what is your thoughts as you walked in here this morning. Do you open up your word a lot? Do you read it every day? Do you meditate upon it? Do you open it up on your Bible, on your, on your uh, phone, on your screen? Do you listen to it on Audible? Is it soaking into you? Because you see, for this to approximate the experience that the apostles had before the cross, remember, they lived with him for three years they slept together, they ate together, they did everything together. And then we sometimes get so confused in our faith, we wonder why our faith is so weak, because we read the Bible, well, maybe better said we have read parts of the Bible, but do we soak in it? Is our experience in the Word like their experience with Jesus? Do we spend, let's just say, three years, do, are we immersed in this word? Do we know it so well? If it was a person, would it love us back because we spend so much time in it and we delve deep into it and we don't take a surface reading as being the only understanding of it? The Bible is supposed to, this New Testament is supposed to, these gospels are in fact the historical witness equal to the experience of walking with Christ. It's a powerful statement. Wow. So if your faith is equal to the time that you have spent delving into the Word, studying the Word, letting the Holy Spirit work through this Word and making it come alive to you, does this define where your faith is this morning? Are you wondering why you feel more like Thomas than you should? It's probably because the Word isn't alive in you. If Jesus abides in us with His Holy Spirit and this Word is His Word, then the two connect and it totally transforms. There is no such thing as a boring Bible passage. And I know that seems crazy. I mean, there are parts of Chronicles and other places you say, oh, Leviticus, I can't handle it. But all of it speaks to and builds on who is coming in the Old Testament, right? Christ is coming. The New Testament gives us the actual story of Jesus having come. Paul's writings tell us the so what. Every part of it 
is supposed to be for us. So let's take an examination as we, as we finish this morning. Faith versus faith. The kind of faith Thomas had. I, I just, I've been talking about how all of these disciples had this experience with Christ. They, they were with him. And yet, what do we see right after the crucifixion happens? And I would even say this, right after the resurrection happens, they're hiding. If you go back to the upper room scene, notice that uh, back in chapter 20, verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. And then, poof, all of a sudden Jesus is there. What are you afraid of today in living out your faith? They were afraid of literal death. They'd already put their Lord to death on that cross. Maybe they were next. You know, when they were, Peter was hanging around right before the, the trial and the examination by the Sanhedrin, and the woman accused him and said, you have a Galilean accent. Weren't you one of them? And Peter's like, no, no, three times, no. And now they're hiding in a room. And Jesus appears. All oh, the grace, the mercy of Jesus. And what is the first word to them, man? You know, right? It says, peace. Peace be with you. It seems, it's, it's not just a greeting. It's not like saying hello. This is a blessing I confer upon you. Peace. Peace be with you. The Father has sent me. He hasn't forgotten about you. If Jesus were to walk up this aisle this morning and stand before us, I guarantee you probably his first words would be peace to all of you. My Father has sent me. So now I'm coming to you. The truth is, we don't have to wait for him to walk up this aisle. That's the coolness about pre-cross, post-cross. Pre-cross, we would have had to wait for him to make an appearance. That was the only way to be near Jesus. Post-cross and resurrection, Jesus is here. If you're a believer in Christ this morning, Jesus is already abiding in you, right? Wow. Well, that faith that these guys are demonstrating is the faith that I have seen most often in people that I minister amongst. Uh, when I worked with high schoolers back in Nebraska, I, I see this all the time. They were raised in the church. They, their parents appeared to be faithful people. They, they went to Awana. They did all the things that you're supposed to do. And if you ask them the same questions you probably could ask Thomas or any of the disciples in the previous part of the Gospels, uh, do you believe in Jesus? Well, of course we believe in Jesus, this Jesus, the physical Jesus. Do I believe in this Jesus? Whoa, now you're stretching me. This kind of faith over here is static. It doesn't produce change. It doesn't make you go anywhere with your faith. It's, it's armchair faith. I'm just going to kind of go along with it. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to do the things I'm supposed to do. But it doesn't necessarily produce transforming lifestyle change. Most of us in the church today are armchair Christians. We sit back and church is just a percentage of our week. It doesn't really have anything to do with the rest of my life. My faith is just a percentage of my thought life. 
I don't necessarily allow it to expand beyond that. It's a mental contemplation only. It's almost impossible to distinguish that kind of faith from uh, non-believers on the outside. Well, let me just ask you this. How is your life fundamentally different from the people that are your neighbors? Do they know that you're a believer? Do they, have they encountered the abiding of Christ in you as they talk to you, as you discuss mowing lawns, washing your car, what your kids are doing, what your grandkids are doing? It gets very uncomfortable, doesn't it? But you see, that's the difference. That's the transformation that's happening here in chapter 20. That's the transformation that is going to happen here with this man, Thomas. Three years he lived and experienced Christ, and yet he had the gall, the unmitigated gall, to say when confronted with the fact that Christ was risen from the dead, to say what? I will never believe. It's easy to do. I'm, I'm, I'm really not wanting to be critical of him because, quite frankly, I think most of us are there. It's hard. How do we believe in these things that we see in the Word of God? I, I took a bunch of kids, as I did every year, down to Mexico when I was working with them. And one, one year, I remember, we had a guy from Omaha. He wasn't part of our usual youth group, but he had been into some evil things. And in one of the nights after chapel, he fell down on the ground, out of his chair, flopping around and cursing and saying things against Christ. We thought, well, we've got a demonic experience here. It wasn't the first one that I had encountered, but for some, they'd never seen anything like it. And so as some of our pastors who were on the team dealt with this young man, and he ended up being fine, we dealt with him. I had a girl that was one of my prize students come up to me afterwards. And even though it was dark, I could tell her eyes were just like headlights. They were huge. And she just looked at me and I said, are you okay? And she said, this, referring to what she had just seen, means that this is real. Referring to the Christian belief that she had supposedly adhered to. You see, that's where Thomas is. If Jesus really rose from the dead, then this is real. It's not about politics. It's not about economics. It's not about good feelings or moral stories or whatever else or however else we define our Christianity. It's about life never being the same again. Wow. Luke 24, 25, I love that story. For John, the crescendo is the story of Thomas. For Luke, it's the guys on the road to Emmaus. You remember that story? After the crucifixion, these guys are getting out of town as fast as they can. They want to get away from any threat or danger, and then all of a sudden, they're he is. And they don't recognize him at first, right? In chapter 24. And then Jesus begins to open up the scriptures. And I, I love their description. These are guys that followed Jesus just like Thomas. 
just like the rest of the disciples. And Jesus says to them, oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe. There's that word faith, pistos. Slow of heart to believe. Jesus was going to hold me accountable today. Would that be his analysis of me? If he could read my thoughts this morning, would he be saying, oh, foolish one, Dave, you even stand in front of people preaching, but how little you believe. So when we have real faith, I love this, after Jesus is done with these Emmaus disciples and he leaves them, what do they say to one another? How do they know that their faith was genuine? Well, they said, didn't our hearts burn within us? Are your hearts burning this morning? Do you know Jesus? Do you know him the way that we're supposed to know him? Is your faith transforming your life? When Thomas gets into this presence with Christ, some people interpret what Jesus says back to him as kind of a scorning question. Have you believed because you have seen me? I take it more as an indicative statement. You've believed because you have seen me. It isn't condemning him. It's just stating the fact. None of us in this room are going to see Christ. Not the way that these disciples did. We have to believe because of what? Because of the transforming power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. And our faith cannot stay that static, armchair, mental contemplation only type of faith. It has to be life transforming. Thomas was changed, and this I know, because from what I know of Thomas's life, he doesn't just stay in Jerusalem or even return to Galilee to live out the rest of his life. What does he do? He moves on to India, from what we're told. He shares the gospel openly with people who didn't know him, as do all of these disciples. And they die for their Lord. Now, people who have armchair-type faith, they're not dying for their Lord. They're barely living, if I can say that. They're barely living for their Lord. We are supposed to have life transformation. Uh, Whatever your goals are, whatever your hopes are for your life, and I'm right there with you, we cannot, we cannot just go on living life like we used to, like we did before. Life has to take on its own purpose, its own meaning in Christ. We have to believe that his abiding power is in us. And when the Holy Spirit trips that trigger and he says to you, boy, I wish that you would do this. I wish that you would do this in missions. I wish you would do this in teaching. I wish that you would serve in this capacity. I wish that you would talk to your neighbors and your family. The only response is I believe that you are the Christ and you are the Son of God. What else can even become close to matching up to that statement of faith? My apistis, the, it's like being amoral. Jesus is saying, stop being apistis, stop being against belief. And he's saying that to his disciples. Wow. I want you to become people of faith. I want you to have pistu. I want you to go into verbal action, uh, verb action. I want you to take it and run with it. 
Some of us do that, and some of us don't. But that's what we're supposed to do. John's purpose in writing this whole chapter is for us to live a life of faith, not armchair faith, but action faith. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace and your mercy today. Oh, Lord, we need your peace. We need your courage. We need a belief that does more than provide comfort to us. But we need a belief that makes us incredibly uncomfortable. Father, I don't want to live my life like everyone else. I don't want to be like my neighbors. I want to bring the truth of the gospel and the power of a transformed life into my neighborhood, into my church, into the lives of those that you've given me to impact. Father, I just ask us all to think about family members, friends that don't know you yet. What would be the cost to us personally, Lord, of telling them the truth about you? And may we be willing to pay that cost. For some in this room, Lord, there's even more. You're calling us to a life change, to a directional change. We're not going to be who we have been. You want us to be something different. And I pray, Father, that we would obey and listen to your spirit. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.